0: Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, it's Timothy Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. How are you doing? Happy lockdown yet again. We're, we're still stuck at home, um, but the weather's turning nice, so that's uh, at least we get to go outside and take pretty walks now.
1: Yeah, the weather in Toronto here, it's one—it's the best day of the year so far. And they're genuine, like the government is genuinely worried that it's going to be a problem because everyone's just like sunshine <laughs> and running out of their house. And are we going to remember to pay attention to the rules? But we're doing good so far. I did gardening today, which I haven't done in a very long time. So Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, Not I yet. actually hate gardening, but uh, I did it. <laughs> And we have
0: We have a couple of very special guests today today we 've got Nathan Moody with us. Nathan is a freelance sound designer, audio editor mastering engineer musician i 've known Nathan a long time. Uh, his background is even more diverse he 's got award winning interaction design illustration animation. Nathan worked uh, on a on a big project here in Dallas, which was fun where uh, he he helped with the uh, coding that programs all the downtown lights on one of the buildings, which is fun. Um, he also does mastering. Nathan's got a long bio here.
1: (laughs) He's got a very long bio. He's done everything. He's seen it all.
0: He's contributed both design and audio to interactive installations, podcasts, museum exhibits, short films, video games, lots more. Hey, Nathan, how are you, man?
2: I'm very well, thank you. Um, (laughs) the, uh, the, The gardening over here has already started, but instead of gardening, my thing is weeding. During these times, I find that any small amount of effort I can take to control my environment makes me feel much better.
0: Yeah, this coming from the, from the avid kayaker that's always out in the ocean.
2: Yeah, which we can't do now because all the beaches are closed. So there's nowhere to put our boats in. So wow. staying dry this season. Also
0: joining us is Stefan Winiker. Uh, He's been working with computers for a long time. He's got a background ranging from photojournalism to digital signage to location based entertainment. He started working in digital media when the storage medium of choice was cassette tapes. <laughs> now he works on a project that requires 14 terabytes of content per hour in order to function. He has deep expertise in hardware, software, and systems designs for digital marketing, filmmaking, and interactive experiences. Hi, Stefan. How are you, man? Hey there.
3: Great. Nice to meet you.
0: So the reason we're all here together is because a lot of us that are used to working in studios are all of a sudden packed up and moved home and we're working from home and we've had to, on the fly, on shoestring budgets, develop our own internal data infrastructure with regards to how we're managing our sessions, how we're getting data you know, to and from the office, how we're doing backups and that type of stuff. Nathan and Stefan are two of the smartest people that we know with regards to how to handle that kind of stuff. So I'd like to start with you, Stefan. Tell tell us a little bit about your background with regards to how you've been working with Nathan and and the type of infrastructure things that you've built.
3: Um, Sure. So let's see. I I met Nathan at um, a company called Stimulant, which did all the interactive design stuff that you mentioned in our bios. And for projects like that, you're worried about how well those are going to work when you're not around. So having a computer that isn't going to break, having hard drives that are mirrored so that if one hard drive breaks, you still have another. Things like that are important for those sorts of installations. But uh, Nathan was also working on his own personal freelance studio audio projects at that time, and he had some questions about things that were going on in his studio at his place. And so we started working a little bit together on his pile of hard drives and why he was having troubles and things like that. So we worked <laughs> together a bit to, uh, to make things better for Nathan's studio.
2: Yes, the uh, the troubles, as Steven alludes <laughs> to, involved the fact that at a certain point, everyone in the agency started making fun of me every single day because I killed more hard drives than any human alive, and so uh, murderer. <laughs> So as you can imagine, uh, data safety and backups were of paramount importance to me. And just like a lot of audio people are very, very particular about the quality of power that goes into their hardware, their preamps, stuff like that for optimal signal flow. That was my problem with hard drives. My house kept getting low-grade brownouts all the time, so often that I didn't even notice. And with hard drives spinning uh, with fluctuating power they would wind up failing really quite often. So one of the first data security tips that Stefan gave me was put everything behind uninterruptible power supplies and instantly things really started to stabilize. And then from there, uh, Stefan's brother is a filmmaker. And so he was able to leverage a lot of knowledge that he had from helping his brother come up with red camera centric data storage protocols and workflows and backup strategies and really helped me figure out a lot of that on uh, in my home studio as well. So some of what I'd like to put together
0: here is just a little capsule, I guess, of first principles, because everyone's situation is going to be unique. Everyone's needs are going to be different. But, you know, a little checklist of, like, what things to look out for, what kind of basic principles to uh, to keep mindful of as we're building our data infrastructure is the type of stuff that I'd love to get to. So as we're talking about audio production at the house, I'm finding that... I'm in pretty good shape with about two or three terabytes worth of storage, right? Just as a baseline, that's you know, working storage that I've got. And then from there, I can pick up and move data back to the office for long-term archival there. But if you're starting from scratch, if you've got a Mac Mini and nothing else and you're ready to build your hard drive infrastructure out, what are you thinking of? Like What kinds of just baseline, minimum viable,
3: this is going to be solid and not break structures am I, am I looking to, to put together? So when I talk to people about this sort of thing, the first thing I start off with is there's two kinds of people in the world. There's people who have lost data that they care about and people who (laughs) will lose data that they care about. How do you lose data? What kind of things are you trying to protect against? You're trying to protect against hardware failure, so a hard drive blowing up. And so for that, you would use a RAID unit of some kind, some redundancy in the actual hardware, and that can be as simple as a mirror where you have one drive and another drive, and it's the same data on both. You can get into more extensive arrays based on how much storage you need, really, um, of you know, eight drives, 10 drives, however many drives you might need for all the storage that you have. The other thing you want to protect against are things like accidental deletion. We've all accidentally hit delete on a file, and five seconds later, some swear words come out. Um, <laughs> System failure, you know, just just something catastrophic and unexpected, some sort of destruction. I mean, something bad like you know a fire at your house or something horrible like that.
1: Spilled that, glass um, of water.
3: Spilled glass of water. For um, real. In Nathan's case, uh, malicious cat behavior. Um. <laughs>
2: <laughs> let's let's act, for the record, let's clarify. I am not acting like a malicious cat. These are malicious cats in my presence. <laughs> <laughs> <They're> very important.
3: <laughs> they they look at that glass of water and they're like, I know where that goes. <laughs> Theft. And if you're working at a not just a home alone studio, but somebody with other people, a disgruntled coworker or something like that. So you have some some the files being lost themselves, and for things like that, you'd like to have a full backup of on-site, of everything you're working on. And that could just be hard drives that are extra, that are copies that are just in a closet or a safe, something simple like that. You also want to have a set of off-site full backups. And that could be a cloud storage-type service. There's backup systems that are based on Amazon S3. There's a company called Backblaze. There's CrashPlan, places like that. Or you could just take another copy of your hard drives and give those to a friend and they put them in their closet or they're safe for you. But the idea is that you take your data and you back it up basically three times. If you're backed up three times, then you're relatively safe.
0: So let's back up to the source hard drives. Um, You know, you you were talking about RAID arrays and I think it's it's easy enough for people to look up RAID arrays, but just as a basic capsule of it, you know, RAID zero is non-redundant, right? That's correct. RAID one is basically one copy lives on two drives. Right. RAID 1 is a mirror. Yeah. Right. So you have two one-terabyte drives in a RAID 1 array, and you've only got one terabyte worth of storage. That's right. Yeah. And then as you move up, there, there becomes more redundancy, and you start having to buy more drives for the same amount of storage.
3: So a RAID 1 is a one-to-one mirror. So that's an exact copy of everything on two drives. So you could also have a mirror of multiple drives. You can also do a mirror of a RAID 0, too, but that starts getting into more complicated RAID arrays. Um, with all these different RAID levels, there are some trade-offs in terms of capacity and performance. And for different applications, you might choose, for example, a RAID 5 or a RAID 6 or something like that. But for most people, like you're talking about, who with a Mac Mini they're just getting started, a simple mirror is is plenty. Nathan, what are you running?
2: Uh, so, what Stefan mentioned in terms of having your data copied in three places, I kind of call that belt, suspenders, and super glue. And I take it a step farther where I have belt and suspenders and super glue and heavy duty chains. Uh, so, my data is actually always written in four places. Um, so, my frame for it is really production oriented. So, the way I frame these challenges is hot storage, cold storage, and backup. Hot storage is the active projects right now. Cold storage is online storage for past projects, where I don't know the next time I'll need to go in and find them, but they should be on a live hard drive that I can access every day. And then backups are copies of both the hard and cold storage we are now in an era where it used to be that cold storage was fully offline storage, like exabyte tapes and stuff like that. And I think that the cost of those systems these days is blindingly expensive compared to just buying more hard drives. So it's far more cost efficient just to buy more stupid hard drives, but keeping them powered online, safe, they're heavy. I, I kind of pine for the Tape days a little bit because you could just have one unit and then a just a a row of tapes on a shelf somewhere. But um, my hot active storage is always an SSD solid state hard drive. And when you make hard drive buying decisions, SSD versus hard drive is an interesting challenge because solid state drives are much more expensive per gigabyte than hard drives. And Stefan and I can tell you some stories about how. You can you can really tell when a hard drive is gonna fail. SSDs are kind of sudden when they fail. Um, so active storage I use and work off of SSDs because they're really screamingly fast, very high performance, and I have those constantly mirrored to spinning hard drives, and that's kind of my tepid storage or cold storage. Um, And those in my studio tend to be RAID 5 arrays. And the benefit there is that you get a tiny performance boost, but really what you get is four disks of redundancy and the ability to hot-swap drives if one fails. So you're running a chassis for your primary storage, right? Right. I actually have two separate 9 terabyte RAIDs in my studio, And the last time one of the drives in one of those raids failed, the recovery time was literally three minutes because I could keep the drive on, pull the bad drive out. And I always, always, always warehouse spare drives that are just blank. And I literally took it out of its case, jammed it into the drive. And without even having to power down, the raid started to rebuild automatically while I still worked off of it. So <laughs> that was a game changer for me. Now, there are other RAID levels, RAID 6, RAID 10, and, you know, listeners to this podcast should definitely do their research and figure out what the balance is for what they want in terms of speed versus redundancy versus safety versus hot swappability. There's a lot of variables there. And price. And price. You got you got a lot of investment in yours. Yeah. But I've been using the same RAID enclosures now for, I think, eight years it wound up being this unbelievably smart investment because I don't, I can upgrade my storage just by putting new drives in. And I haven't swapped out the chassis in almost a decade.
0: So what I had to do is I had to scramble and just get, uh, I'd got a two terabyte chassis that was just kind of built together into a thing. And and I'm doing raid one. And so I've got one terabyte of storage on the thing and it was, you know, couple hundred bucks or something like that. Just enough for me to have enough space to comfortably do work. And then I've been going into the office about one or two days a week. And so I can just on on another, you know, uh, just straight USB-C drive, have a transfer to work folder. As soon as I walk into work, I dump stuff to our primary hard drives at work. And then from there, it goes into our backup architecture there. While stuff is at the house for me, um, good syncing up to Amazon S3. And that's actually been working really well. But my redundancy is not beyond that. Like, that's yeah. the entirety of me. Yeah. Did so, you say good syncing? Yeah.
1: What's good syncing?
0: Good sync is some software. It's, it's like Crash Planner, like any other. Uh, it, it costs, I don't know, 40 bucks or something like that. You can just point it at a folder on your drive and then point it at an Amazon S3 bucket. At, at whatever schedule you set, it just backs the whole thing up. Like, and so I've actually had to jump into my S3 bucket and because I, I I absolutely like RXed something that I didn't mean to, <laughs> and so I had to jump back to my S3 bucket and pull down my archive from the day before, mm-hmm. and it worked like a champ, super easy. Just jumped into the into the browser, d- drove right into it, and pulled it down,
2: and it was there. We we are all um, we are all always one mista modic fire key short of writing over <laughs> an important previous version.
0: Yeah. So, you know, if my house burns down, I do have my drives up on the cloud, or at least I have my projects up on the cloud, that one folder. And I only have one folder on the actual hard drive that's backing up to the GoodSync stuff.
3: But that's it. So that's all I've got. So where am I screwing up? Well, you, you take it to work, too, though. So you are actually getting true. <clears throat> You're getting that redundancy of I'm going to the office and I'm plugging it into another system and all my data is going into a whole other infrastructure. So you've got your drive at home, you're putting it on another drive that you transport, and then you're plugging that into a bigger system and that's archiving it for you. Yeah. Yeah. So if you came back home and something was gone, you would, you would have the drive with you. Correct. Yeah. So you, you have it with you. So that's the extra one there. Version protection is always fantastic because that's what you always run into is, wait, the one from yesterday, that's what I really needed.
0: Well, and I, I don't really have like proper version protection. I just hadn't run my sync again. Because mm. my sync runs every night, right? I just run I it see. once. I run it at night. Mm. And so like I knew that it had synced the night before and I knew the moment I screwed up when I had screwed up. Yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <So, laughs> and that's that's where systems down. that's where systems like Crash Plan and Backblaze are really useful. Stefan turned me on to Crash Plan, but now they only do business accounts, not personal accounts. So I went over to Backblaze and what's great is that it is constant backup. So if I screw up, I I have several minutes that I can roll back in any file on my system and do a restore. And in fact, using that term restore, that's one of my metrics for making backup decisions. How long will it take to restore a drive or restore a file? And this is why I've got All of my data on my drives, I use a hard drive dock into which I plug bare hard drives off the shelf to do on-site incremental backups. I do the same thing once a month on duplicate drives for off-site backups stored at my wife's office, and I have the cloud backup. And while that's the same data written in four to six places, if I've got the math right, uh, based on how my system works... It's all because I'm a freelancer and I'm entirely reliant on myself to protect my clients' projects. And so if something goes down and you're a freelancer, or if you run a business of any kind, time is money. And online restores from the cloud, if you have to restore an entire drive, that is extremely time intensive. And so I picked up this drive doc idea from Michael Raphael of Rabbit Ears Audio And I love it because you buy one, quote unquote, drive enclosure, which looks like a toaster. Yeah. And then you can just keep buying bare hard drives. So you're not buying additional power supplies, additional enclosures. You can get little um, plastic covers for them and literally stick them on shelves like books. And you can just have all of these drives that you only spin up when you need. So the mean time between failures on the drives can last a long time because they're not running every single day. They're only running when you back up your hard drives. And so that's been a really nice way for me to do incremental backups much more quickly if there's a catastrophic failure than uh, trying to do a restore from an online service. Which which enclosure are you using? I'm I'm Mac-based here at the studio. Uh, So I use a newer tech Voyager Q dock. And then where do you source your drives from? Well, there's another trick I learned from Stefan. Because people um, get superstitious about their drives. They, they absolutely do. I tend to favor certain manufacturers and I mean industrial manufacturers like Hitachi and Toshiba. I tend to not buy from repackaged sources like LESI or other manufacturers like that. But Stefan taught me a lot about how not all hard drives are created equal. Uh, especially when it comes to spinning hard drives as opposed to solid states. But, Stefan, do you want to talk a little bit about enterprise-class drives and kind of what that landscape is like? Sure. The first thing is
3: that you mentioned Backblaze already. We've mentioned it a couple times. They actually publish their drive reliability report, which is a fantastic resource because you can look on their web page and they say, we have 10,000 of brand X drives. And over the past year, this percentage of those drives have failed. And they purchased drives across a bunch of different vendors at a bunch of different sizes. That's really valuable information because I look at it and I go, ah, last year they had one-tenth of 1% of this drive fail. I'm gonna go buy those now. Because someone has (laughs) already done the, the research of putting a bunch of these drives in service running them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and seeing how well they survive. Do, do drives
0: kind of run like wine vintages? Like, is there just a, a particularly good year for Toshiba or something?
3: There, there definitely have been vintages of drives over time. And as you look at these reliability reports, you will see that over time, the the fortunes of various vendors have have risen and fallen. And there have been some years when some companies have made drives that have been not very good at all, and they get a very bad name for a little while, and then they have to recover from that. I'll look at buying new drives and go, you know, I'm gonna buy drive X versus drive Y in a particular capacity, because it's not just a vendor of a drive, it's that it's, you know, a Seagate six terabyte drive, ah, Backblaze use those, and those perform really well, but just a year ago, they had a bunch of, say, Seagate eight terabyte drives, and that particular drive model, like down to the the long crazy string of numbers that the drive has, that one wasn't very good. And so when I go to purchase drives, it's not just vendor and capacity, but I'm looking at really specific drive model numbers. And then also what's on (laughs) sale.
0: So Nathan mentioned earlier, you know, his decision to to roll with enterprise class drives. Like at what point should that be something that you consider versus like when is it fine to not go
2: that far? Well, uh, my take on that is that it's a really personal decision because what we're really talking about here at the end of the day is everyone needs a system of redundancy and backup that matches their personal risk profile and appetite for risk. Some of us have very low appetites for risk, and so we will buy enterprise-class-only hard drives.
0: Well, what's the difference between enterprise-class versus non?
3: One of the big things, believe it or not, is the warranty that the drive vendor offers. So an enterprise-class drive may have a five-year manufacturer warranty associated with it, and a consumer version of the same drive might only be a three-year warranty. The other thing that goes on with hard drives is down at the the firmware level of the drive and some of the features and functions that the vendor might enable. In an enterprise environment, you're likely to have a whole bunch of hard drives, especially we're talking about spinny drives here, that are packed very closely with each other in a rack of drives. One of the things that goes on is all these things are spinning and they're all vibrating And then the drive heads are moving back and forth, and that sets up other vibrations. Enterprise drives have different values set in the firmware so that they can tolerate this different vibration level Mm. that's going on compared to a consumer drive. So it's all about failure rate. Some of it's tweaking based on sort of the presumed operating environment of the drive. And from a
0: price differential, if you were to buy a terabyte enterprise class versus consumer class, like what's the, the differential?
3: Drive prices vary so much, but an enterprise drive is going to be more. It might be twice as much. It might be more than twice as much, depending on the on the drive and the capacity. The other thing is that enterprise drives are also offered in some really crazy capacities these days. 14, 18, 20 terabytes on a single hard drive. Because when you're Instagram Data, data center space is so expensive, they are trying to pack as much data as they can into,
2: into a physical space. Now, one of the interesting benefits, however, of getting an enterprise drive that is that ludicrously big is that it does allow you to actually do a single drive backup of a fairly large RAID volume. So my nine terabyte RAID volumes have four drives in them each. And having a single 9 or 10 or 12 terabyte drive lets me back up that entire RAID volume on just one disk for on-site or off-site local backup. So that's, that's a potential interesting wrinkle where that winds up being beneficial. Hmm.
0: You know, the other thing you were talking about with regards to your on-site local backups is the, the need to spin the drives up every so often. So at the office, for me, we're still on tape. And so I can let a tape sit there for 10 years and then I can fire it back up and go find the thing and it's fine. Um, As long as we still have the drives and the computers that connect to the drives, which,
1: you know. And the version of software that you backed up the project on.
0: Well, yeah, well, honestly, we've been using Retrospect for 20 years. So, you know, they've been bought and sold, you know, (laughs) to three or four different companies, but you know, the software has functionally stayed the same through the whole time, right? One thing I don't do is I don't have a bunch of hard drives sitting on shelves somewhere that I have to periodically spin back up. So, like, is there a protocol for that? If you let a drive sit there for five years, is it going to fire up? What's what's going to happen? A spinning drive, I should
3: say. You know, I've, I've never tried it. I have some drives on my shelf behind me that are probably that old. I guess we could plug them in and see what happens. Um, <laughs> you definitely run into the situation with drives of a certain age that... Uh, Some of these drives are IDE drives, and then I have to go, wait a minute, where's the interface for that? Because it's not on my computer anymore. Mm -hmm. And so there's a certain amount of historical protection that that you do. Um, My brother has all his photography and filmmaking work archived since the beginning of his career, and what we have for him is I've built him a separate physical backup server for his house um, that is uh, a 24-bay super micro-based system, so that's got a a bunch of 8 terabyte uh, hard drives in it. And uh, he also has that identically set up on his regular work workstation. So all of his photography work going back to day 1 and this house built backup server are both spinny hard drives. But then he also uses backblaze. Yeah. So we kind of got him away from the hard drives on shelves archival method. Yeah. Just just because that way at least if you're using an active array of drives, you've got data protection in that your data is striped across multiple hard drives. So even if you turn, even if your backup machine has been off for a few months, you turn it back on, there's drive integrity checking that happens and data integrity checking that happens so that if a drive happened to fail, you swap that drive out and rebuild your array and your data is protected. The hard drive on a shelf problem is it's a unit of one. Your unit of failure is that hard drive. It's it's like a sourdough starter. Like it's
0: always alive and you're constantly feeding it. <laughs> totally. That's
2: right. And I mean at the end of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, data is just a series of charged particles on a medium for spinning hard drives. And this is a challenge that I have with the system I've devised is that I do have powered down drives sitting on a shelf and the magnetic charge of those literal bits on the hard drives are not infinite. So my protocol is under normal use, I do incremental backups. Uh, I tend to use ChronoSync or SuperDuper, uh, both for macOS. And when I do incremental backups, I do that for about a quarter, about three months. And then once a quarter or several times a year, I do a full backup where the whole drive is fully erased top to bottom and all the data is rewritten fresh.
0: And that's of your entire history of data?
2: Yes. Now, my my entire history of data is still written on the spinning RAID drives, so I actually don't have any data that is only on a shelf. How long does that kind of a backup take? For the fresh writes, I tend to do that on Friday nights and then go to bed, and then have it just run overnight, and it's almost always done in the morning, even for 9 to 10 terabytes.
3: And the other thing we haven't really spoken about, we've been talking about media files and things like that, but it's also important to back up anything that you would really hate to lose, and that's you know, email documents, software installers, in case you know, someone takes those off online, software serial numbers for your purchases and things like that. If it would take a while to get it back, it's better to just have it backed up somewhere, sometimes even your entire operating system. Um, If you're running on a Mac, time machine is a a pretty easy thing to just set up and plug in and have working um, so that if something happens to your main computer, that it doesn't take a really long time to get back to a working state.
2: You know, like viruses or upgrading to Catalina. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, you know, well, I mean, Catalina is a big deal as was OS X. Like it feels like on that level, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: nothing was I mean, everything had to be rewritten to work with Catalina. Yep. When when you start when you start looking at your home system as your means of production and generating income, all of a sudden your risk profile changes from when it's I'm working at a facility and I've got some spare stuff at home that lets me be, be creative in my off hours. When this is the th- the stuff that gets the work done, uh, it puts a whole d- different lens on it. And I've had personal clients of mine years and years later contact me because they've had a hard drive failure and I'm the only person with their files. Mm-hmm. And boy, talk about a value same. add in the eyes of a client.
0: Yep. Same for us. But again, you know, we have all our stuff on tape. And so... Like I feel like our restore profile goes back a decade pretty easy. And then beyond that it starts getting sketchy. Right. Um, you know, and in our facility, we have enough data to where I, I think it would be it wouldn't be super feasible to keep everything online and and spinning on drives the whole time.
1: But um, the downside of tape is that there's a amount of time it takes to get it off the tape. Where yes. you have a, a RAID backup or a drives on the shelf, it's just plug and play. Where to get that stuff off the exabyte, you got to go into the logs, find it, restore it. Sometimes finding it can be as difficult as uh, restoring it. But I mean,
0: you do it for 20 years, you figure out the tricks. And like, if I just had a stack of hard drives, I feel like it would take me as long to find something on a stack of hard drives from a decade ago than it would yeah, just a searching point. a catalog,
2: you know?
1: But I guess my point was just that it's got, there's that extra step of... Someone can't just walk in and go, I need this now. You need to be told in advance to go get that yeah. off of the It is
2: it is it is just like audio on tape. You have to yeah. find yeah. where it is on the shelf and hope it's indexed correctly. And then you've got you have got the seek time and then you've got the write-out the time. Seek time is and the long time. that does that does take a while.
0: I mean, I usually budget about an hour to pull something up from you know from eight or ten years ago.
2: One thing Stefan taught me was how solid state drives have this really stealthy failure mode. And by stealthy, I mean <laughs> irrevocable and sudden. And one of the one of the things, you know, for f- folks like us who've been in the media industry for a while and we've come up through side quest drives and zip drives and hard drives, is that you can often use your senses to tell if a hard drive's getting a little funky. Sound, access speed, hard drives mm-hmm. often give little clues that eh, this is something's not quite right. And if you act right then, you might be able to save some data potentially. Whereas I remember our server at work, just one day, just SSD failed and just it's gone. It's dead forever with no warning whatsoever. And it's not a make or break for a purchase decision, but it's I think it's important to know those behaviors between SSDs and hard drives in terms of uh, reliability.
0: Is an SSD failure
3: recoverable from a specialist the way that a regular hard drive is? Depends on the drive. Um, there's lots of companies that when they get down to it, they're talking about board level SSD recovery where they're desoldering chips and desoldering them onto devices to read them and things like that. Jesus. So it's depending on how much the data is worth to you, <laughs> you can get it back. The problem with SSDs is that it's another computer that's running inside that little box that we call an SSD and it's doing its own thing. And they've had some issues in the past and will probably in the future where there's something up with the firmware on the SSD and something happens and the drive is just like, I'm not talking to you anymore. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: (laughs) Hewlett Packard in the enterprise space had a big deal about this a few months ago where there was a firmware issue that at a certain number of hours of operation based on a counter in the drive, the drive would stop responding. And
1: they put out bulletins like crazy (laughs) on this because they're like,
3: by the way, people, if you don't update your firmware before this exact number of hours of operation, the drive will stop responding. It's a James Bond drive (laughs) right there. It is. For people who had RAID arrays made out of this model of SSD, you could be in a situation where, if they all hit the hours of operation at the same moment, you would just lose the whole array. <laughs>
0: Jesus.
3: So, <laughs> there's always exciting yeah. issues in storage. Um, but yeah, SSDs are a lot faster um, than hard drives. Their capacities are lower. Um, they have their then they have their own yeah idiosyncrasies. They're and they're more expensive. They're more expensive so by by a fair amount. Yep.
2: You know, okay. one aspect of data redundancy we haven't talked about so far is redundancy at capture time. And I think that's just as important as maintaining files in post during an edit process or any sort of editorial workflow. And one of the things that I think is just critically important is that we keep talking about you should write your data in more than one place. And I hope that we continue to see manufacturers of field recorders and media capture devices continue to help us as media professionals do that more consistently and be able to have us write data at capture time in at least two places because on the occasions i'm asked to be a recording engineer that's what's always giving me stress is don't let this cf card fail right now please and you're just crossing your fingers hoping that that one source, all your data is being written to, survives the session.
0: Um, so my current setup that I'm speaking into right now is uh, microphone into sound devices, Mix pre 3, uh, USB-C into the Mac Mini, into Pro Tools. So you know, sound devices, at least when you're hooked up to a computer, will do that, right? So it'll it'll record to, to the CF card, and if you're feeding it out, it'll also act as a interface simultaneously. I think the Zoom boxes will do that as well. But yeah, Nathan's talking about back in the day, the 788 would have you know multiple CF uh, uh, compact flash cards that could record to simultaneously along with an internal built-in hard drive, and that type of structure has just kind of gone away recently. Mm-hmm. You almost do have to have a
3: a computer hooked up to to get redundancy. When you do field recording, Nathan, when the session is done, do you do a safe copy to your laptop, like even before you leave the venue?
2: I am worse than that. I am one of the few people that actually has one of these to brand CF card in the field readers that doesn't require a computer. I lug this heavy, stupid thing around And the very first thing (laughs) I do is when I'm really done with the session or if it's a field recording outing is before I pack up my gear or as I'm packing up my gear, I take out this little device, pop the card into it, and then it writes the data immediately to an internal hard drive. It's kind of a pain workflow wise, but it helps me have a nice drive home after a session and I'm just not stressed about it. And that's worth a lot to me.
0: Um, I'd like to talk. Quickly, before we wrap here about data security, there's a lot of cloud-based solutions and even sync-based solutions like Dropbox and whatever else that will allow you to you know, just have a folder synced up from your house to the office. I tend to shy away from that for the most part. I do have a one folder on a Google Drive that I'll sync, but I only ever put sound effects on that. For me, I, I like Amazon S3 because you can really, really lock down the permissions on that thing. So, you know, you can create a bucket and then you create a user that can access the bucket and nothing else can touch it. And it just doesn't exist anywhere else on the Internet. Whereas with things like Dropbox and Google Drive and the like, one password hack and and everything that you've synced up between the two locations is is vulnerable and available. Not even a password hack. One permission set wrong, and it's vulnerable and available to to the whole internet. So, Stefan, I guess from your experience, how do you how do you approach that type of thing?
3: Well, whenever I'm having the the data security conversation, I always start off with the concept of dollars over paranoia. Um, or how hard is someone going to try and steal your work and your content? I think for for most people, the same amount of security that you're going to want to have for any kind of online activity is going to be plenty. Good passwords, using a different password for a different login. Password managers. Password managers. That's a good start. Making sure your permissions are set right, also a good start. And again, it's how sensitive is the thing that you're working on?
0: The balance is like data redundancy versus data security. I mean, I can take data and throw it into 15,000 different places and I'll never lose it but someone else will find it. Mm-hmm. So so like from a systematic perspective, how do you approach the balance?
3: It's so much on a case-by-case basis sometimes. If you're working on something sensitive, if you're working on, I don't know, a political campaign and you're doing audio for that, you might want to be more focused on much more physical security, hard drives locked in safes, hard drives in safety deposit boxes, hard drive encryption Things like BitLocker or Veracrypt or something like that so that the, the contents of the data on the drive
2: is more difficult to get at. I would mm-hmm. actually uh, reflect that question back on Renee. Uh, I think you work with a lot of very large clients with Dallas Audio Post. Do you have data security requirements put upon you by your clients?
0: not by our clients we do we do have um data security protocols in place that are there for our because we we are a, a verified data secure facility right and so we have a lot of protocols that we have to follow to to keep everything safe some of it we can't discuss publicly right so that it's not easy to break <laughs> so but but fundamentally yeah it is about keeping everything locked down and only you know just your 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 basic data security protocols are Nobody can access the data that unless they unless they need to access it, and when people need to access data, they can only access the pieces of the data that they need to do their job that kind of stuff all of our all of our tape drives and all of that are run in duplicate and then taken off site but you know we don't have from a facility perspective cloud backups, partially for the- security Perspective, and also partially just because cloud backups are still dramatically more expensive than tape backups. Now, for my home setup, um, I don't have a I don't have a tape drive. In retrospect, and all of that, so I have done cloud. But again, what I did was I went Amazon S three. I created a specific bucket for my production stuff with data security in mind. And and there's a learning curve to it, right? But there's also a YouTube video for all of this. Like you can you can sit and in an afternoon figure this out. Um, so you create a bucket on Amazon S3, you create a user and only the one user can access the bucket and then you use that that user's credentials with your backup software to do the auto backup and then that's that's kind of it, right? And that works great. Now I have a little bit of experience with that because I also run Echo Collective and so with Echo Collective we have, you know, sound effects libraries that are for sale that would be uh, detrimental to us if people, <laughs> you know, would access them for free on the internet. I also keep those in Amazon S3. And so when I was doing you know, this setup for that with Echo Collective stuff, that's where I kind of learned the structure and the workflow of how people keep digital assets like that safe. I know there's other um, products out there, other protocols out there, but that's kind of the most common one with, with the most training re- readily available. So that's the one that I use. But all that's to say that I also don't put client productions in Dropbox
2: one of the strangest side effects with data security is not just access via passwords and things of that nature but physical access to the drives themselves well we had to install
0: cameras like when we were getting when we were getting our certification we had to like install locks and in cameras that we didn't have before like around the machine room you know, because, yep, yeah, it's exactly to your
2: point. You know, you you can't allow some rando just to walk in and plug a USB drive into your computer. Exactly. And I have, I have other friends who have their own facilities where they've had to go with biometric locks and things like that to satisfy certain large corporations' data requirements. But when you work from home, it's still a thing. Yeah, you can't lose track of it. Right. And, you know, if you live in your home, surely over time or in a, or in an apartment... Over time, your landlord, repair people, construction contractors, over the course of a year, you actually do have some flow of people who are not you coming through your your space. And it's important to always keep in mind, someone's coming over to repair a plumbing problem, maybe pull the door to your studio shut so they see it's not filled with
1: gear. So I had a situation years ago where uh, the entire studio was robbed and ransacked and gone. but. I had my working project drive with me at the time, so I didn't lose any particular data. Uh, yeah, that that's the thing that I live in fear of, is the robbery as much mm-hmm. as uh, the fire, because uh, I feel like robberies are more common than fires, and at least in my head. I don't hear about people's buildings burning down much, but I hear about windows and doors being kicked in more often. Mm-hmm.
2: Stefan and I live in California, so we can tell you some fire stories. <laughs> oh.
1: No, I mean, and, and that's a real
2: thing. I don't know if you remember, but... Yeah, w- for sure. Was it two years ago? You know, the, the world's most famous nature recordist, Bernie Krause, his house burned to the ground in Santa Rosa, and all of his equipment was gone and just destroyed. But all of his data was backed up off-site. So his whole life's work of... These incredibly important and vital bioacoustic field recordings still exist. And so I think that's the ultimate example of when backing up your data at home is absolutely vital.
1: So I have a system that would make you guys lose your minds. (laughs) (laughs) And my system with this uh, stay at home thing has crashed to the ground because my redundancies aren't working. What I would do is uh, I don't work in the same spot all the time. So uh, I have a studio that's downtown and then I have a studio in my basement that has now been massively upgraded by bringing a bunch of the studio stuff downtown or, or from downtown to my house. And then what I would do is I'd work for the day back up to the local computer at the studio there, take a work drive home and then, you know, either work that night or the next day back up there, take that work drive back. So my home studio and my work studio had... Both had everything, all well, except for the most recent day's work. And then I also have, uh, my sister is a real estate and wills lawyer. And in her building, she has a fireproof, like, walk-in safe. So my sound effects library and all long-term archive stuff goes into there. But I don't have that, uh, the mirroring or any kind of raid going on. So I have a time machine backing up my, my home computer, like, to you know, the emails and all that kind of thing. But uh, now I'm not going back and forth. So now I my work computer is right here and I just kind of am backing it up, doing the same thing, but they're in the building beside each other. Mm-hmm. So if I get robbed or if there's a fire, I could be in some trouble. Now, long-term How projects... How much data are
0: you talking about, Tim?
1: I'm not talking about a huge amount of data. And also when I deliver my edits to the mix studio my full edits are backed up on their massive system that is going uh, multiple redundancies and everything. So if I need to go back multiple episodes right now, I just go to a hard drive. But if those were all to disappear, I could get it off their backup system. But uh, before we knew we were going to do this, I spent half a day researching Backblaze and Carbon Copy Cloner and a bunch of other things trying to figure out a new protocol. But I'm also in the middle of a humongous project And I'm trying to find the time to figure out how to make this uh, work while also trying to get a certain amount of work done, while also having my kids climb on my head while I'm trying to work. And (laughs) I'm in a vulnerable state for the next couple weeks until I have a bit of time to figure it out. And the
2: ideal of having an offsite backup is kind of not practicable when we're all under shelter-in-place orders. Exactly.
1: Yeah, like if I do have to go to my sister's office to get the stuff, I don't know if I can even do that right now.
2: Yeah. I think that given that scenario right now during the the pandemic that we're going through, I think that's when online backups really do become pretty vital.
0: That's what I was going to say. Just just roll backblaze or yeah. I've I've really enjoyed GoodSync honestly like GoodSync got 400 gigs up in a day um, and I was very yeah. happy with it and it, like I can see my whole file structure up there and
2: Renee just brought up one of the most important things to consider when you're choosing to start an online data backup plan and that is remembering how long it's going to take to instantiate that backup for the first time it took Renee a day. It took me 28 days. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the reasons why back in the day, Stefan recommended CrashPlan to me was that they would give you what's called a seed drive. They would mail you a drive. You update whatever data would fit. Maybe if it's not everything, that's fine. Then you send it back. They plug it in, get it on the server. You get an email saying, hey, your backup's instantiated. And then you just push the rest. And that wound up being really, really efficient. And I know that Amazon has this Glacier program that uh, yep. would would do that too with this big mil spec jerry can looking thing that you actually can back up many, many, many terabytes on and then just ship it back.
0: Although Glacier, I mean Glacier is there specifically for pricing, right? That's so that you can back up tens and tens of terabytes of data and not not totally break the bank. Right. When we're talking about like audio levels of data, mm-hmm. which is you know a terabyte or something like that. Just regular S three. I mean, I spent eight bucks or something like that. Because yeah. the thing about S three is that you they don't charge you for upload. They charge you for download. So you can back up everything essentially for free. Um, and then you only pay basically when you pull it back off. Right. So as a as That's a That's a great model. Yeah. And as ai uh, I'm, I'm making less money right now, but I need to get something backed up kind of situation. Like that's a pretty good way to yeah, go about it. I found it because helpful. other, the other ones are, you know, 20, 30 bucks a month or whatever, man, I'm just never going to pay that much in Amazon.
1: Well, you're also making the bet that when that day comes that you have to pull down a massive amount of data, that amount of money you pay for that is less than what you will be paying by paying a larger amount each month.
0: Right, but I think that's an easy bet to make, though. Yeah, because I, even, I, I even
3: when you're pulling down a lot of data from from S three, it's not crazy expensive. Mm-hmm. The the other side of that is how fast you need to be able to get working again. Yeah, and so while you're talking about upload speed, you also have to be thinking about restore time as well. And for audio files, the data the data sizes aren't gigantic. If you're working with bigger data sizes, then you get into the idea of if I needed to rebuild my file system right now, how much time would that take? And even though the internet's pretty fast, yeah. it's not ultimately fast sometimes. And if you need to rebuild terabytes and terabytes of data, would that take a week to rebuild or two weeks? Mm-hmm. And so the, the other thing to look at is if you're dealing with a lot of data is, can your backup provider send you hard drives? Like can they do a local restore in a facility and just send you a unit? So who does that? Yeah, not, not as many people as I would like. Having a C drive and uh, having a drive restore, Backblaze might do restore, but I have spent a little while since I've looked at their website. I don't know if they provide that, that service any longer. But
2: that's for something me. to evaluate if you're shopping for a service, for sure.
3: Yeah. Um, for, for Renee, I would say, yeah, even if you don't go with Backblaze in the long term, it's inexpensive to get started. And if you just start it running on your computer and just go, you know what, I'm just going to select everything and start this running, and over a few days it gets done, then at least you have a backup that's off-site. Right. And you're, you're talking about system-level stuff, right? Um, it'll, it'll make a default set of selections to begin with. And just start backing up, but you can also say also oh, back up this external drive and back up that external drive. So
1: Backblaze backs it up to their systems, though, right? You don't need to set up Amazon S3 or anything, right?
0: I, I, yep. They probably just use S3. On well, back yeah, I'm, their own I'm stuff. sure they
1: do. <laughs> but.
3: So they actually have two different services. One is um, the consumer service, and that uses their own data storage facilities. One is in, if I remember right, Sacramento, and the other, I think, might be in Phoenix. And that uses, that's where they get their driver reliability studies from is all these systems that they build. Uh. They actually build their own backup pod, and if you wanted to build one in your own house, they have designs. You can, you can download their pod design and make their, I think it's 50 drives in a tray or something crazy um, if you're feeling adventurous. But the basic Backblaze service uses their own systems and services in their own data center. So you set it up and start it running, and it just does its thing sitting there in the background. Cool. I mean, Tim, if I were you, I'd just pick something and just start it running.
1: Like, yeah. Like get, well, get that going. It's on my list of shit to do, and it should be higher <laughs> on the list of shit to do. But times are crazy right now,
2: people. This is true. <laughs> yeah there's a, there, I, I think there's an old military saying that one is none two is one, and yep. that is that is the mantra I live by in terms of data safety
0: yeah I almost feel weird just having one cloud backup, but you know the other thing is like i I work really hard to get my systems as automated as possible. The the fewer human fail points um, that there are, the better. Mm. So I spend more time setting up than I do administering things a lot of times because I, I would prefer to have things running on their own or else uh, I'm going to
2: forget something or screw something yep. up at some point. Yeah, totally. And, and and you really hit at one of the frustrations of being a creative person that uses technology is that we want to be artists. We want to be designers. And it's very frustrating to also have to be IT people for ourselves but it's one of those things where if you if you do ignore it i do think you do that at your own at your own peril
1: i don't know what you're talking about
2: (laughs) 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 well like i said uh, to come
3: back around to the beginning there's people who have lost data and there are people who are going to lose
2: (laughs) so plan ahead hope for the best plan for the worst
3: this has been
0: super informative. I really appreciate both of you guys coming on. I, I'm not a huge hard drive geek, and so I learned a ton uh, just in the first part of that for sure, just about what to even look at and what to look for. So I, I, I greatly appreciate you two coming on and talking about this. This is something that I think a lot of audio people are low-key kind of bad at. And so hopefully this will be useful to people. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for
2: having us.
1: Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Moro.
2: Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at Follow us on Twitter via at the Tone Benders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening.